Good morning, Beacon Church, and welcome to this week's Sunday on the Sofa. And if this is your first time with us, uh, we're so glad you found us and you are more than welcome. Uh, we, as a church, we gathered in person for the first time in 14 months. Last week at Vibe, we had a wonderful time. It was truly precious. If you haven't caught up on the video from that morning, on, on that Sunday's message, um, it's available on our uh, Vimeo account. Go and check it out, and uh, also on our website as well. And uh, please do catch up. It's an important message for us just to remember um, what we need to hold primarily as we move forward into the next season as a body of God's people here in Herne Bay. Next uh, Sunday, we're going to be back in Vibe again. Uh, ticketing will come out through our midweek update email on Tuesday. If you're not subscribed to those and would like to, get in touch with me through the email at the end of this video. Um, and uh, I hope to see you there. If you are still remotely concerned about joining in, um, please just, you want to know more about what it's like because you weren't there last week and you just want to get your head around it a little bit. Um, I understand that. Just speak to uh, the folk that were there, pick their brains um, or give me a bell. Let, let's talk it through. We want to help you and we want to make it um, as easy for you as possible. So uh, please do get in touch or ask around. Plenty of people are there. They'll, they'll explain more things to you and put your mind at ease, I trust as well. So um, in a moment, uh, right here, right now, John Way will be speaking to us on a very difficult subject as we continue through our Luke series. Uh, but before we do, um, I just I just want to pray for us because we are coming into a season, we're now in a, a season of change again, aren't we? Uh, as as a church, as a community of people, um, as, um, as a nation as, as well, things are changing. Um, but we need to remember that our God is unchanging. Hebrews 13 verse 8 is a verse I shared in our midweek update a couple of weeks ago, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is utterly unchanging. He is utterly unchangeable. He cannot change. He is good and he is always good. He is able and he is always able. And so with this current changing season in mind and also today's message, which um, as John will explain in a minute, it's a seemingly impossible task that God is asking of us. But he, God, is always able to help us and to catch us in his purposes. He doesn't ask us to do something and not give us what we need to do it. So let's rely on his reliability, let's depend on his dependability, and let's love him all the more for it. Let me just pray. Father, we come before you now as we sit under your word, will you speak to us, challenge us as always, uh, but will you also comfort us and give us a fresh resolve and a fresh confidence in the fact that you are unchangeable, you are always good, always able, always powerful, always in charge, always loving. Lord, help us to never lose sight of that, to never lose sight of you. Let us not take our eyes off you as we hear what you have to say and we step into what you've got prepared for us. Help us, we pray, by Holy Spirit, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Over to John. Hello, everyone, and good morning. Continuing in our preaching series in Luke's Gospel, we come to one of Jesus' most challenging statements. It's a real tough one. Love your enemies. We're going to read from Luke 6, verses 27 to 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for the one who takes away your cloak, 
Do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Some years ago, and I expect it's still available, there was an American action spy film starring Tom Cruise called Mission Impossible. What Jesus teaches in what has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount looks like Mission Impossible. It looks like an ideal that we should aim for but rarely able to attain. Some have said that Jesus was an impractical idealist who never quite came down to earth. Many of the commands we have in the Bible regarding how we should treat other people, for example, what we find in the Ten Commandments, have been broadly accepted around the world as a basis for a civil society. And for us in Britain, they are reflected in some of our laws. For example, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and so on. They are about behaviour and actions, and in particular, what we should refrain from, what we should not do. But now Jesus, without diminishing these commandments, goes beyond our actions and gets to the heart of our intentions and talks about our attitude and talks about love and raises the bar so high that it looks like an impossibility. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Notice that Jesus points us away from the negative of do not to the positive of do. So as far as he's concerned, it's not enough to refrain from doing harm to your enemies. We are out of love for them to look for ways of doing them good. Well, you must be joking. That's what the world at large would say, wouldn't it? with further exclamations of impossible, impractical, unreasonable. Come on, it's hard enough to try and love our neighbour. Now you want us to love our enemies and maybe use our resources to do them good. Get away. It's not humanly possible. And that's it. That's absolutely right. It's not humanly possible. In Matthew's account of the sermon, Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew 5.20. The Pharisees, who saw themselves as custodians of the law, and they were good at being that, were meticulous 
in trying to do and to persuade the people to do everything that was humanly possible to bring Israel back to God by conforming to the law. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is not a description of what is humanly possible, but what is divinely possible. So how can we do that? How can we go against our natural instincts where perhaps we want to retaliate because of something bad done to us? Or at least where we want to hold on to our resentment towards someone because we think they deserve it. But before we look at the how, we should ask the question why? Because if we are not convinced as to why we should obey this command and all the rest of Jesus' teaching, we will find it all the harder. So why such radical demands? Why the possible need for sacrifice? Why be at odds with society? Why can't we just blend in? We're saved, we're on our way to heaven. Surely we can take the easy road and coast home. We could, of course, just accept that if Jesus is Lord, uh, then we do this purely out of obedience. And there is a, a truth there that we should obey even when we don't fully understand. But I'm going to suggest that there are at least two overwhelming reasons why we should obey. And we find the first of those reasons at the end of the passage we read this morning. And Jesus said, And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And then in Matthew's account, it's something similar. He says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I don't believe that Jesus was saying, if we try really hard to live like this, we will become sons and daughters of God, because that would be a gospel of works. No, we become children of God by receiving Jesus as our Lord and Saviour and trusting in him alone for our salvation. But we are saved for a purpose, not just to escape judgment and have a place in heaven, but that now through the ups and downs of life, in the good times and bad, when we are well treated by others and when we are ill treated by others, even hated by them, through our lives which are being transformed by the Holy Spirit, we demonstrate, we display, we live out the family likeness. And that likeness is of a loving, merciful Father. And just as a reminder, the quality of mercy is not giving people what they deserve. Throughout the Old Testament, God is shown as a long-suffering, merciful God who bears the pain of his people's rebellion and then later supremely demonstrates his love and mercy by sending his son into the world to suffer and die, not just for his friends, but for his enemies, those who had spurned his love. In the agony of the cross, Jesus, on the point of death, prays for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's Luke 23, 34. As true believers, true disciples of Jesus, we have experienced the love and mercy of God, even when we were God's enemies. 
when we were powerless to deal with our sinful nature, when we were powerless to live a life that glorified God. Here's how Paul explains what God has done in his letters to the Ephesians and Romans. The first one is Ephesians 2.4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then in Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We who were once spiritually dead, once God's enemies, now have the potential to display the family likeness, to be like our Father, to live out the values of the kingdom of God, because God has miraculously, as Paul says to the Colossians, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. That's Colossians 1.13. So we obey because by living out the values of the kingdom of God, we bring glory to him and we show the people of the world by our lives that God is more loving and merciful and forgiving than they could have ever imagined. Notice that Jesus does not give his disciples a list of techniques for evangelizing the world. He says, do not be like them, be different, otherwise your light will be hidden and your saltiness, which is meant to purify and preserve, will be unsalty, fit only to be thrown out and trampled by men. Phil Moore says in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, there is one principal thing far above everything else which wins people to Christ, and that is the lives of people who have already been won for Christ. Jesus tells us that if we live his kingdom way instead of the world's way, we will become salt scattered throughout the world and light which shines in their darkness. Both salt and light are effective because they are different and people respond to the gospel because they see the difference of God's kingdom in our lives. The Sermon on the Mount is not a call to blend in but to stick out to embrace God's revolution in our lives and in so doing spark a revolution in the lives of those around us. We know, don't we, that people look for authenticity. They look for genuineness. They tell us they can't abide hypocrites. They want to know that the gospel that we are preaching works and the one striking way to demonstrate this is to do what seems impossible. That is, as we are considering today, to love our enemies. Mahatma Gandhi, the Hindu founder of the modern state of India, was once asked by a Christian missionary why he often quoted the words of the Sermon on the Mount, yet refused to follow Christ. He replied, 
I don't reject Christ, I love Christ. If Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ, as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today. So this is the first reason why we should love our enemies. It is because God is glorified and people get a glimpse of what God is like. They will see the family likeness and they will see that the gospel has power to transform the worst of us. The second reason uh, we should obey is because love is redemptive. Love heals, love restores, love conquers. Hate only begets hate. Hate only intensifies hate. Retaliation only perpetuates the hostility. We have only to look at what's been going on in the Middle East recently to see this being played out. But love reconciles. Paul tells us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, transforming his enemies and making them family by the sacrificial love of Jesus. The way that hate is dissipated is when it is absorbed and is replaced by love. Jesus did not conquer the evil in our hearts by resisting it, but by absorbing it. A relatively modern day example of the redemptive power of love is that which was seen in those who in 1968 joined Martin Luther King Jr., the African-American Baptist minister, in the campaign against racial inequality through non-violent resistance in what became known as the civil rights movement. It was the teaching of Jesus to love your enemies that inspired him personally and what he preached to the people. I had to look at one of his sermons on the subject of loving your enemies and I can do no better than to quote from it because he was someone along with his followers who put it into practice. For them, it was not mission impossible. He says this, now there is a final reason I think that Jesus says, love your enemies. It is this, that love has within it a redemptive power. And there is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. Because if you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem and to transform your enemies. But if you love your enemies, you will discover that at the very root of love is the power of redemption. You just keep loving people and keep loving them, even though they're mistreating you. Here's the person who is a neighbour, and this person is doing something wrong to you, and all of that. Just keep being friendly to that person. Keep loving them. Don't do anything to embarrass them. Just keep loving them. And they can't stand it too long. And they, oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with bitterness because they're mad, because you love them like that. They react with guilt feelings. And sometimes they'll hate you a little more at the transition period, but just keep loving them. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love. You see, it's redemptive. And this is why Jesus says love. There's something about love 
that builds up and is creative. There's something about hate that tears down and is destructive. So love your enemies. And towards the end of his sermon, he says this. So this morning, as I look into your eyes, into the eyes of all my brothers in Alabama and all over America and over the world, I say to you, I love you. I'd rather die than hate you. And I'm foolish enough to believe that through the power of this love, somewhere men of the most recalcitrant bent will be transformed. And then we will be in God's kingdom because we had the power to love our enemies, to bless those persons who cursed us, to even decide to be good to those persons who hated us. And we even prayed for those persons who despitefully used us. Although King did not see, didn't live to see this in its fullness, this transformation took place in the nation because the conscience of a nation was touched. It began to feel shame at what was shown on television of peaceful protesters being brutally treated and laws began to change. This power of transforming love is illustrated by what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 19. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The thought here is that by doing good to your enemy, you allow God to use your actions to bring the person under conviction of sin and so begin the transformation. Returning to Luke 6, we see that Jesus illustrates ways in which we might show love to our enemies. And it possibly raises the question as to whether he is teaching that we should always put up with abuse from others. First of all, we in this country have laws which are there to protect us in a whole range of situations, including in the home. If people who have hurt us have broken the law, then it's right for the due processes of the law to take place. This is necessary for an ordered and civil society. However, we can still love our enemies and pray for them. And for minor offences, it may be right for us to accept the abuse while we follow through with what Jesus teaches, which is to pray for the abuser, to pray God's blessing upon them, to speak kindly to them and find ways to do them good. I believe that by God's grace, this is possible. And not only might we see a change in them, but that God will use it to transform us and increase our love for them. I've been acutely aware as I've prepared this that around the world, and especially amongst Christians, there is persecution, there's repression, there are atrocities carried out against innocent people, and the like of which we've never seen or experienced. Villages ransacked, people murdered and raped, 
and it's brought home to us on the television screens with some of the scenes omitted because they're too horrific to show. How people in such circumstances find it in their hearts to love their enemies, I do not know. And I feel the least qualified to speak on this subject. But God knows, because God in Christ stepped into our world and was abused by the very ones he came to save. And even now he holds out his hands of love to them, not willing that any, even the worst abusers, should perish, but all come to repentance. Jesus does not say we are to like our enemies. To like someone is to be attracted by some quality in them, which merits our attention. You probably know that in the Greek there are three words for love, uh, when we only have one in English. Jesus was not asking his followers to love their enemies by storge, which is natural affection, or eros, romantic love, or philia, brotherly love, or friendship, but agape, which is to love the unlovely and is independent of the merits or the attractiveness or the character of the one who is being loved. This is the love with which God has loved the world. We are called to love others, not because they're likeable, but because we know that God loves them. It is love that seeks nothing in return. We do not have to agree with everyone and we may hate what they do, but we are to love them. And it may be at great personal cost, but because of the love of God in our hearts, it can be an overflowing love. Loving our enemies is not mission impossible for those who have received God's love and mercy in salvation and have been transformed by his love. However, it may be hard and challenging and may require sacrifice on our part. But sacrifice is part of our calling to follow Jesus. I'll end with how Paul expresses this calling uh, at the beginning of Romans 12. He says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Love your enemies. May God grant us grace to be like him. Let's close with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we hear your son's call to a radical lifestyle that challenges our natural instincts, which are to be resentful of those who oppose us and retaliate when they abuse us. As your children, who are recipients of your love and mercy that you have lavished on us, help us to settle in our minds that love is the only appropriate response to our enemies and that the power of the love you have poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit will overflow to others by your enabling grace. Amen.
Thank you, John. Wow. It's a, it is a very difficult subject uh, for, to varying degrees for, for, for each of us in, in different uh, ways in our lives, how, how that might apply. But it is something that is earth changing when we do live it out. Uh, it may be bigger than us. It really is. But he is big enough to catch us. So in our small groups this week, let's talk it through with friends, with family, with him in prayer. Let's work it out what he wants us, uh, how to, what he wants us to do in order to put it into practice. Um, let's seek his face uh, in our everyday lives. Eh? Uh, if you want to know more about this God that we're speaking about, please do get in touch. The email coming up in a minute. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you. Um, but uh, there, there is a place to know this God like we do, and we would love to help you on that journey. Be blessed. Have a fantastic week, and I hope to see you maybe at Vibe next Sunday.